You're listening to Pastor David Gusick preach through the Book of Acts at Calvary Chapel, Santa Barbara. The theme from the Book of Acts is Spirit-Driven. I thought about it this morning, and I thought how strange it is that we come together here on a Sunday morning, and I I open up a book that's some 2,000 years old, and, and we read it together, and, and I teach from it with all earnestness, believing that God really has something to say to us from this book. And I just have to say, I do believe that. I believe that there's many ways that God speaks to people, but I believe one of the chief ways, and, and I would say this, the most reliable way that God speaks to people is through this amazing book that documents His way, His communication with man. And the particular section we're in right now this morning is the book of Acts, chapter 9, starting at verse 10. Now, I I just need to set a little bit of a framework for you here. We're making our way through the book of Acts, which describes the work of the earliest Christians, how God was moving in them and through them to fulfill what Jesus asked them to do before Jesus ascended into heaven. Jesus asked his disciples to take his message and to make disciples, to make other followers of Jesus, and to do it first in Jerusalem, then in Judea, then in Samaria, and then to carry on that work to the uttermost parts of the earth. I mean, these were the instructions of Jesus to his people before he ascended to heaven. He gave them this solemn charge to do this. And and the book of Acts chronicles the beginning of that story. We, we would say we're living out the continuation of that story right here, right now in Santa Barbara, California. But, but the book of Acts describes how that story began. And in chapter 9, the main concern here is the conversion of a man who used to be an energetic and violent persecutor of the church. You see, as the church began to expand, as the followers of Jesus spread out from just Jerusalem and Judea and past Samaria and now to places beyond, the place we're concerned with here in chapter 9 is first Damascus, there were people who didn't like the spread of Christianity and wanted to stop it. And this man, Saul of Tarsus, was one of these ones. But we saw last week in the first nine verses of Acts chapter 9 how God dramatically confronted this man, Saul of Tarsus, on his way to the city of Damascus to persecute Christians. And while he was on the road to Damascus, it's become a phrase that sometimes we use in our culture, a road to Damascus experience, a radical turnaround, God did something amazing to meet this man on the road to Damascus. First, there shone all around him a light that was so bright that it was brighter than the noonday sun. Then God spoke to him. Very unusual. We don't usually regard that God would speak audibly with an audible voice to a person. But God spoke audibly to this man, Saul of Tarsus, from heaven and said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And then, and then, God uh, uh, was, well, you could say that God struck him blind. You could say that the experience made him blind, or however you want to put it. He left that experience with God on the road to Damascus blind and had to be led into the city of Damascus with, with everything turned upside down for Saul of Tarsus. You see, he thought he knew who Jesus was. He, he thought that Jesus was a criminal who deserved to be executed on the cross. This experience totally turned that upside down. He thought he knew who the followers of Jesus were. He thought that they were at the best misguided, dangerous people who need to be put down. This whole experience changed that. 
And he was led into Damascus. His world turned upside down, his eyes blind. And in verse 9, it says, and he was there three days without sight and neither ate nor drank. There he is, completely empty. Nothing going into him, right? Blind, sitting in the dark, so to speak, eating nothing, drinking nothing. And then God is going to use a very special man to reach out to him. Look at it, verse 10. Now, there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And to him, the Lord said in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. So the Lord said to him, arise and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he is praying. And in a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him so that he might receive his sight. This is one of the remarkable men of the pages of the New Testament, this man named Ananias. Even though this is the only place where we read of him. We don't read any of him before this narrative in the book of Acts. We don't read anything about him after this narrative in the book of Acts. He's like a comet. He comes upon this scene. He shines very brightly and then he's gone. But man, he shines brightly while he's there. You know what I think is amazing about this man, Ananias? Is look at how he's described right there in verse 10. A certain disciple. Man, that's about as plain, vanilla a description as you could get of a person, right? A certain disciple. He's not an apostle. He's not an evangelist. He's not a pastor. He's not a deacon. He's nothing notable about him, so to speak. We don't know why he's in Damascus. We don't know what happened to him afterwards. He's a certain disciple. But there he is, and God is going to use this man in an amazing way. You see, God communicated with this certain disciple. And verse 10 tells us that God spoke to him in a vision. And it's a completely different way than God spoke to Saul. We saw last week in the first nine verses of Acts chapter 9, how God spoke to Saul in a disturbing, if I could say this, almost violent way. Knocked him to the ground, a blinding vision, a voice from heaven. It was a remarkable story of a man's conversion, or, or at least initiation into that conversion. Nevertheless, that's how God spoke to Saul, who was resisting him, when God speaks to Ananias, who is in tune and surrendered to God, there's a sweetness about it, right? Ananias, this is what I want you to do. He says, Ananias. And what does Ananias say? Here I am, Lord. How much better? Can I just say it's better to be an Ananias than a Saul? It's better that when God calls out to you, you don't cringe back. Who are you, Lord? And it's better to say, here I am, Lord. What do you want for me? And Ananias simply responds in this open way. And God says to him, what does he come to do in a very specific way? He says, verse 11 tells us this. Arise and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he's praying. And in a vision, he's seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him so that he might receive his sight. You know what amazes me about this account? How specific it is. What an amazingly specific List God gave Ananias. A list that could be falsified very easily. I mean, God tells him what to do. There's a specific straight, street, a street called straight. So he gets, oh man. You know, he gets out his, uh, his map book of Damascus and he looks, well, there's no street called straight in Damascus. I guess that wasn't of God, right? No, there is a street called straight. So he goes to the street called Straight. And then what's next? Verse 11 tells you there's a guy, a house of a guy named Judas. He looks up and down the directory. Well, there is a guy named Judas. I guess this vision is from the Lord. 
He knocks on the door of the house of the guy named Judas. Is there a guy in there named Saul of Tarsus? Yes, there's a guy in here named Saul of Tarsus. Well, I guess the vision's right. You see, God gave him so many points where the validity of the vision could be confirmed, where it could be verified. And why did God give him so many points of verification? I believe that this was absolutely essential. Because God was calling Ananias to do something radical and to do something dangerous and to do something like that under the the auspices of a vision from God, you better have a lot of confirmation along the way, right? So there was a street called Straight. There was a guy named Judas on that street. There was a man named Saul of Tarsus in Judas's house. What's the next thing? Verse 11. It says, you'll find him and he's praying. Ananias calls it, hey, Saul of Tarsus, is this guy praying right now? Yeah, he's praying. And then if it could give him more specific, in Ananias's vision, God told him about a vision that Saul was having. And Saul had had a vision that he had seen a man named Ananias who would come and lay his hands on him and he would be healed. So he says, did you see a vision about a guy named Ananias coming and laying his hands on you that you'd have your sight healed? And Saul says, yeah, that's me. You put the whole picture together together, and Ananias knew this was from God. Now, again, this was a dangerous situation that he was walking into. Friends, I, I don't mean to alarm anybody, but it's true. It's true that both in the modern age and in church history, there have been persecutors of Christianity who have faked conversion to Christianity just to infiltrate Christian groups so that they could more viciously persecute them. Matter of fact, there was a terrible story in the news within the last four or five years of just such a situation like this in Turkey. And we knew it because we lived in Germany at the time. And, and in our time in Germany, we knew that it happened because uh, the, the people who were affected by this were German missionaries. But there were a couple Turkish men who feigned conversion. They faked it. And for a couple of years, they gave very convincing words. Yes, we're really followers of Jesus. Well, all the time, they were plotting to infiltrate this Christian group. And to bring violence upon the leaders. And they did in a terrible way. It was a terrible story. But these things have happened. Both in the modern world and in the ancient world. And so Ananias has some good reason to be suspicious of this terrible persecutor named Saul. Who came to Damascus for the express purpose of persecuting Christians. Of imprisoning and binding them. And taking them back to Jerusalem. He has every reason to be suspicious and to feel that his own neck is on the line as he walks in there to meet this man. But he has this confirmation, right? It is the Lord speaking to me because it's been confirmed every step of the way. By the way, we encountered something of this in our own life. When God, we felt God was speaking to us, oh, eight or nine years ago, that that we should leave the church where I was pastoring in in Simi Valley, California, and that we should go from there and go start a small international Bible college in Germany. We knew that that move was going to affect a lot of people, especially our family, right? Three teenage children taking them in a move like that. Affecting a whole church, right? We had to know that this was... So we prayed, God, send us a lot of confirmation if this is your will. And you know what? He did. He poured out the confirmation from heaven. And we had this assurance. Yes, this is what God wants us to do. And we believe that that was demonstrated as things worked out. Anyway, going on in the text, Ananias arise and he went and he saw that... uh, uh, 
Saul was praying, or that, that was the word that God gave to him, verse 11. He said, you'll notice, for behold, he is praying. By the way, that indicated a true change of heart in this man who was famous for persecuting the disciples of Jesus. You might say this, that even though Saul was a religious man before, he had never really prayed before. Maybe he had recited formal prayers, but you know, it's possible to recite formal prayers without actually having one's heart in prayer. True prayer isn't a matter of vocabulary or eloquence or being able to say these and thous in a particular way. True prayer is a matter of one's connection with heart. I think it's, it's very significant that God tells Ananias here, Behold, he's praying. You could say this, that before this, Saul had said many prayers, but he had never really prayed. Well, if God told you to do what he just told Ananias to do, you might have the same reaction Ananias has in verse 13. Notice this. Then Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much harm he's done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. Now, certainly, Ananias had heard about this angry and violent persecutor coming from Jerusalem to Damascus. And the followers of Jesus in Damascus must have been anxiously awaiting the arrival of this persecutor. And Saul was kind of a celebrity, but in a bad way, right? Everybody knew who he was. So when Ananias heard that God wanted him to go and minister to this man, he said, Lord, I've heard about many from this man, how much harm he's done. You want me to go visit this man? Lord, Lord, do you really know who we're talking about here? Do you know what kind of guy this guy Saul is? Isn't it funny how we would ask such questions of God, right? We do it all the time, don't we? How many times have you said to God, God, do you really know what's going on in this situation? Can I ask you, God knows what's going on. He knows what's going on better than you do, right? Now, I don't think it's... Look, it's just very human to speak this way to God, right? I don't think God despises it. Matter of fact, God was gracious in answering this to Ananias. Uh, he knew that, that Ananias knew a lot about the harm that he had done to his saints in Jerusalem, that he had authority to come from the chief priest to bind all those who cast on your name. Now, in verse 15, God answers his objection and he says, No, Ananias, I want you to go because that man is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles, before kings and before the children of Israel. God had a call on the life of Saul of Tarsus and he says, Ananias, go. I know you've got reason to be afraid, but go. Go because that man is my chosen vessel he is my chosen vessel. Don't you think that's very interesting? Wouldn't you say that God could also say the same thing about Ananias? Was not Ananias also a chosen vessel of God? Now, for a different purpose than Saul. Saul had a very specific calling there, verse 15, to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. That's what he was a chosen vessel for. Ananias was chosen, but for a different purpose. But he was a chosen vessel to come and to be the man who sort of midwifed this man, Saul of Tarsus, into the kingdom of God. That's a remarkable thing, isn't it? 
that God had a chosen calling, a chosen purpose for Ananias, and he had one for, for Saul of Tarsus. And if I would say this very line, that he is a chosen vessel of mine, I could say that that's true of about half this room. About half its room, this is true, that he is a chosen vessel of mine. Of the other half, we would say that she is a chosen vessel of mine. <laughs> but don't you think that's true? That God would say the same thing about you? Now, now, whether or not you're fulfilling that for which God has chosen you for, that's an entirely different issue, isn't it? But doesn't God have a plan, a purpose for your life? Doesn't God have you chosen to be a vessel in some way? Doesn't he have a race for you to run, a job for you to accomplish, a part for you to play in his grand drama of this world? And for some of you, that's that where you really need to get your mentality. You need to figure out what part God wants you to play in his great story. For others of you, you're, you're trying to make God an actor in your story. No, let's turn that around. No, God as a place for you to fit in in his great plan. He did for Saul, he did for Ananias, he does for you. And his specific thing was to bear his name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. Verse 15, that sounds glorious, doesn't it? Aren't we flat? Yes, bear my name before kings and Gentiles and the children of Israel, yes. And then we read verse 16, right? For I'll show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. That's a very sobering addition that God put to the call upon the life of Saul. Saul was going to leave a life of privilege and he was going to embrace a higher call leaving that life of privilege. But it was a call with a lot of suffering to it. And Saul may as well know it from the very beginning. So you're going to have a lot of glory working through your life, but there's also going to be suffering. Are you going to take hold of both? So this is what happens. Verse 17. And Ananias went his way and entered the house and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you came, has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales and he received his sight at once and he arose and was baptized. So when he had received food, he was strengthened. Then Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. Isn't this beautiful? Ananias musters up the courage and in verse 17, we read that he actually goes to this house. He goes to the place. He meets with Saul. He puts away his fears. He overcomes this fear or suspicion and he lays his hands on that man. And what does he say? Two beautiful words. Brother Saul. Brother Saul, I put you under arrest for persecuting Christians. Did he say that? No, he said, Brother Saul, Receive your sight. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. Isn't that beautiful? Brother Saul, I tell you, after three days of nothing, no food, no drink, three days of brokenness and emptiness, three days with that encounter on the road to Damascus reverberating through every part of that man's darkened life, after that, he needed a loving touch. He needed a loving word from somebody who would say, Brother Saul, and God sent a flesh and blood human being named Ananias to bring that to him. Look, I, I know that God could have done this with a voice from heaven, right? 
The road to Damascus thing that proved that God can do the voice from heaven thing, right? He can. He could have shouted down from heaven, Saul, receive your sight now. He could have done that. God could have sent an angel to do it, right? God can do the angel thing when he wants to. He could have sent the angel thing. And then, brother Saul or Saul, receive your sight. He didn't do that. He sent a flesh and blood human being, a man who just a few days before would have been in mortal danger of Saul of Tarsus. And he says, I want you to go love on that darkened man and I want you to lay your hands on him and bring light to his darkened life. And that's what he did. Do you see what an amazing place that Ananias has in the plan of God? He was this. He was like this midwife who brought Saul into God's kingdom. And this midwife who birthed him into the kingdom of God. And he said, be filled with the Holy Spirit. So, so that not only was Saul emptied out through those three dark days sitting before God in blindness, but now he was filled up with the Holy Spirit. And he was beautifully and powerfully converted. Now, look, I, I don't know when you, you could have a good theological debate about this. And sometimes it's fun to debate theological things. Here's the theological debate. When was Saul of Tarsus actually converted? At what moment? Was it when he was on the road to Damascus? Was it during the three days when he sat in, in darkened silence before God? Was it when Ananias laid his hands on him and said, be filled with the Holy Spirit? We could debate the point. I just want to make the point here that he was converted. That he did something that much of the world today, if they ever do think about it, they, they think it's impossible. And it's to do this, to choose your religious faith. Did, did you know that a lot of the world doesn't even relate to that concept? This is what they think. They think you're born a Christian, you're a Christian. That's what you are your whole life. You're born a Buddhist, you're a Buddhist. You're a Buddhist your whole life. You're born a Muslim, you're a Muslim your whole life. They just think in that mentality. Because their religion is tied up with cultural and upbringing and nationalistic and all sorts of different things. Well, friends, I've got to say, Christianity is completely different from that because Christianity says you choose your faith before God. And I'll happily say this to anybody. If you identify yourself as a Christian just because you grew up in a Christian home, just because you live in the United States of America or something like that, friends, you need to re-examine your faith. You need to examine your faith so that your Christian faith is something freely chosen and not simply inherited from your parents or your grandparents or your culture, but it's something that you have chosen to believe before God. That means that it is very possible for a person to be converted, that a person can change their mind about their religious faith and put their faith in who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for them, most pointedly, on the cross. That's exactly what Saul of Tarsus did. He came to Damascus thinking one way about Jesus, and now all that got completely turned around when Ananias came and ministered to him. So verse 18, he received his sight at once. He arose and he was baptized. Verse 19, when he had received food, he was strengthened. You know, I like that. I love the little verses like verse 19. You know what that's just, God cares about a man or a woman's practical needs as well. You know, sometimes the most spiritual thing you can do is take care of yourself physically, right? If you haven't eaten for three days, sometimes the most spiritual thing you can do is eat some food, be strengthened. 
I probably shouldn't have said that at this hour right before lunch. I might have set your minds thinking in a different way, but you know what I mean. But then look at what it says right there in verse 19. It says very plainly, it says, Then Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. Now, isn't that interesting? Saul was now numbered among the disciples of Jesus, and he became friends with those who he had previously tried to imprison or kill. And this shows the remarkable, radical nature of his transformation. He was a changed man. He went from a man filled with hate and violence to a man filled with love and forgiveness for others. And don't tell me that that first meeting wasn't awkward. (laughs) Hi, I'm Saul. Uh, A few days ago, I was planning to take you all back in prison, back to Jerusalem. Hi, I'm Saul. I may very well have killed some people you know. Can you imagine the forgiveness that had to go on there? Isn't it beautiful that Saul numbered himself among that community and that that community received him? They said, we forgive you. We believe you. You are among us. Now, even though Saul's conversion experience was so radical, it was in some sense a pattern for others. This is what Saul, later we call him Paul the Apostle. Saul was his more Hebrew name. Paul was his more Roman name, but it's referring back to the same guy. The Apostle Paul would later write in 1 Timothy chapter 1 these words. He said, Although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man, I I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in in unbelief. Now verse 18, or 16, excuse me. However, for this reason I obtained mercy, in that in me first Jesus Christ might show all longsuffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. You see, what God did in Saul's or Paul's life became a pattern, an illustration, an example of how he would work in the lives of others. That kind of radical love, that kind of radical transformation, that kind of radical conversion. Can I add one more thing before we move on to verse 20? Saul's conversion reminds us that God finds some people who are not looking for him at all. He does. Now listen, we're heartened when we feel that people are searching after Jesus, right? When people are, oh yes, this is wonderful. You're searching after Jesus. Let me show you Jesus. Let me read with you the Bible. Let me tell you about the truths of the gospel. It's heartening to us and we appreciate it greatly. But listen, Saul of Tarsus shows us that sometimes people who aren't looking for Jesus at all, or at least by any outward appearance, sometimes God gets their number, doesn't he? And I think that that should be a great encouragement to some people in this room. So I imagine if I'm speaking to this many people, that there are people here, you're praying for somebody for a long time, somebody very dear to you, a mother, a father, a, a brother, a sister, a son or a daughter, a dear friend, someone you grew up with, someone you knew a long time ago, and you have desperately wanted that person to come to Christ, and they seem so far away from Him, and you've prayed for that person for years and years, and maybe now you stop praying for them. Not because you consciously chose to stop praying, but you know what? It's just too long. A person can only take so much. You can only keep your hopes up for so long. And you just kind of thought, well, I guess it's not going to happen. Maybe you never said those words, but that was in your heart. Can I just remind you again? Saul of Tarsus shows us God can still reach that person. And have faith in God. Pray your prayers again. Ask God to reach them. Ask God to break through. Don't give up on that person. 
If I could say it, if you're that person, if you're that person that somebody else has been praying for, why don't you give it up already? <laughs> why don't you just decide that you're going to put your faith in who Jesus is and what he did for you on the cross? Why don't you decide that you're going to make Jesus the center of your life? That you can come at it from both sides, but the story of Saul gives us great, great hope, great inspiration. Let's continue on now, verse 20. Immediately he preached Christ in the synagogues that he is the Son of God. Then all who heard were amazed and said, Is this not he who destroyed those who called on his name in Jerusalem and have come here for that purpose, that he might bring them bound to the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who dwelt in Damascus, proving that Jesus is the Christ. This man was so filled with inspiration and with the Spirit of God, you would say, that verse 20 tells us that immediately he preached Christ in the synagogue. Now, you see, back in the ancient world at that time, there was a custom in synagogues of that time where a distinguished visitor would often or virtually always be asked to speak. And Saul had the clothes of a distinguished rabbi. He had the education of one of the greatest rabbis at that time, being a disciple of Gamaliel. He had the background. He knew the lingo. He stepped into the synagogue. And people, if they didn't know who he was by his face, they could figure it out very quickly. This man is a distinguished visitor in our midst. And they would invite him. They'd say, well, distinguished visitor, do you have anything you'd like to share with the synagogue? And Saul would say, oh boy, do I ever. I want to tell you about Jesus. And if you notice, verse 20, it says says that he preached the Christ. He preached the Messiah. That's what Christ means. Don't get confused about that. Christ is merely the Greek rendering of that Hebrew idea of the Messiah, the Mashiach. He came to them and he said, ladies and gentlemen, I've got great news for you. Your Messiah has come. It's Jesus Christ. Jesus of Nazareth is your Messiah. And could you imagine what a great message that Saul of Tarsus gave? He goes, just a few days ago, I didn't believe that. Just a few days ago, I persecuted those who were the followers of the Messiah. But, but he met me personally on the road to Damascus. And he did such a work in my life that now I'm preaching that he is the Christ. And not only that, if you'll notice also in verse 20, he says, immediately he preached the Christ in the synagogue that he is the Son of God. Now, when some people hear that phrase, the Son of God, they think that it's a way of saying that Jesus is not God, that, that he's somehow less than God, only a son of God, as if you got, well, you got real God, and then you have some lesser being known as the Son of God. But in Jesus' day, in that, that Hebrew culture of that first century and before and beyond, actually, everyone knew what that meant. You see, to be called the son of something meant that you were completely identified with it. If you were the son of lies, you were an absolutely confirmed liar. Uh, uh, you were a liar from beginning to end. Liar demarked your whole character. Therefore, if you are the son of God, you are God. You see, when Jesus called himself the Son of God, and when he received it, when other people call him that, it was understood as a clear claim to deity. And what a revolution this is in the heart and the mind of Saul of Tarsus. Just a few days before, he did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah. Now he does. Just a few days before, he would have considered it blasphemy to call Jesus God. Now he calls him God. And to preach that Jesus is the Son of God is to preach the perfection of his life and especially the greatness of his work for us on the cross. Because that's where his deity matters the most. Because God himself offered himself as a sacrifice for our sins. It means that it can be an infinite payment. 
Only an infinite being can make an infinite payment for sins. And that's what God did when he laid down his own life. If I could quote one of Paul's later writings, when God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself on the cross. That's all bound up in the idea that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, and that he is the Son of God. But people were amazed, quite logically. Look at verse 21. It says that they asked, Is this not he who destroyed those who called on this name? That they were amazed. How could this be the same one? But Saul of Tarsus was now a new creature. As he would later write in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Ladies and gentlemen, Saul of Tarsus lived that verse before he ever wrote it. He knew what it was like to have his life made something brand new. And verse 22 tells us that he increased all the more in strength, serving God and preaching the gospel. Now continue on in verse 23. It says, Now after many days were passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. I need to just stop and pause right there at the end of verse 23, where it says, after many days are passed. You see, what we have in the book of Acts is sort of a compressed version of the history. Those many days were actually about three years. Now, we know this from reconciling this with Galatians chapter 1, verse 13 through 18, how Paul explains what happened during those many days. And believe me, Luke, the historian, is not being dishonest at all. He's tipping us off, right? He says, after many days. It's just that we think of many days and we think a couple of weeks. No, Luke is implying there's a few years there where Saul of Tarsus, where it says that he went to Arabia for a period of time, and then he returned to Damascus. So now he's back in Damascus, and his life was under threat, according to verse 23. Now in verse 24, But their plot became known to Saul, and they watched the gates day and night to kill him. Then the disciples took him by night and let him down through the wall in a large basket. They plotted to kill him, verse 23. And this is essentially began the fulfillment of the many things that he had to suffer that were promised back in verse 16. Saul was now the persecuted rather than the persecutor. Think about those two different categories, right? There's the persecuted, those who receive persecution. And then there's the persecutor, those who give out the persecution. And if you think about it just quickly, which would you rather be? Our human inclination. I'd rather be the person. I'd rather be the person with the power, right? I'd rather be the person in charge. I'd rather be the, 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 the person who triumphs rather than the victim. But friends, I think anybody who's awakened to the things of God immediately says, it would be better to be the persecuted. Now, I don't say that for a moment to make light of persecution. And my heart grieves when I understand how Christians around the world today are viciously persecuted. Terribly so. Friends, this is a huge problem in the world. There's almost silent about it in the world today. It's an awful thing. And just because we, we don't have a whisper of it in the West, we're so out of touch with how it might be in the West. We don't understand that in other places, in other countries, there are Christians who pay the ultimate price and they are the persecuted friends, it is a thousand times better to be persecuted, as bad as that is, than it is to be a persecutor. 
And the sad, sad history of the Christian church is, is that in the past, through the centuries, Christians have been persecutors, and we should never, ever, ever be that. Much better to be where Saul is now in verse 23. Verse 24, but their plot became known to Saul. Verse 25, the disciples took him by night and led him down through the wall in a large basket. You say, well, why mention the large basket? Why not just say he escaped? You know what I think he's letting us know here? He said it's fairly ridiculous the way that he escaped, right? Don't you think that's a little ridiculous to find a large basket and lower a guy down over a wall through it? It's pretty humbling, right? It's not exactly triumphant, right? He came into Damascus, or should I say, he intended to come into Damascus full of triumph, full of power, with a sword, so to speak, raised, right? How does he leave Damascus? Humbly from a basket. Which one was better? No doubt about it. The humble way was much better. This, this was the work of God in this man's life. That was the beginning of many escapes for Paul. And sometimes he didn't always escape. Sometimes they caught him. Sometimes they put him in prison. Sometimes he was beaten for his faith. Sometimes they tried to kill him. Up until the time where eventually, under Caesar Nero, he was beheaded. But he escaped many times until God had appointed for him to pass from this earth to the next world. Now let's finish up here, starting at verse 26. And when Saul had come to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him and did not believe that he was a disciple. Well, maybe I should just pause right there at the end of verse. Can you believe this? Now, friends, as I said before, this is some three years after his conversion. Some three years after his conversion, he comes and he visits Jerusalem and he tries to join the disciples, but they're all afraid of him. Doesn't that seem strange to you that they would still be suspicious of him? But you know what? Maybe we should grant these uh, Christians in Jerusalem a little bit of slack. Not much. I think they should have received him. But I wouldn't blame them if they looked at Saul of Tarsus and maybe some of them said, You killed my friend. You put my mother, brother, sister, whatever, in prison. I don't know if I trust you. Maybe you're on the ultimate deep cover mission and the last three years have just been a sham. We don't believe you. Now, I try to look at it from the standpoint of the Christians in Jerusalem, but then I try to look at it from the standpoint of Saul of Tarsus. And listen, I'm amazed at the grace that he had here. You see, at this point, many people might turn their backs on Jesus Christ. Would you completely blame Saul of Tarsus if he said something like this? Listen, man, I've been serving Jesus for the last three years, preaching Jesus, enduring assassination attempts and death threats, and now you won't accept me as a Christian? That's the love of Jesus? Forget it. We, we wouldn't have completely blamed him if he would have reacted that way, right? But no, Saul... Saul had a bigger love for Jesus than that and a bigger love for God's people. And you know what he did quite wonderfully? He said this, well, if there's a little bit of love lacking on behalf of my Jerusalem brethren, I'm going to make it up with a little more love from my own heart. And he didn't stomp off. He had a greater heart for love towards Jesus and towards the followers of Jesus. And friends, that's exactly how we should be. I think, I think about how hurtful this must have been for Saul. And I think about many people who have been hurt among Christians today. 
Again, if I'm speaking to this many people, I know I'm speaking to many people here today. You, you have been deeply wounded by another follower of Jesus Christ. I don't know how, I don't know why it doesn't really matter. But in whatever way, you've been deeply wounded, deeply offended by them. Can I just say, if the love was lacking on you, on their side, can you not ask God to give you more love for them to make up for? And to forgive them and to, to, to let it go the way that Saul seemed to right here. In any regard, starting now, verse 27. But Barnabas, oh, I love that. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. And he declared to them how he had seen the Lord on the road and how he had spoken to him and how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. So he was with them at Jerusalem coming in and going out and he spoke boldly in the name of Jesus and disputed against the Hellenists, but they attempted to kill him. When the brethren found out, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him out to Tarsus. First, you see what happened in verse 27? Barnabas. God bless Barnabas. Barnabas puts his arm around Saul of Tarsus and he goes... Come on, guys. He really is converted. He really is sold out for Jesus Christ. You don't have to reject him. And Barnabas paved the way. He did what Paul would later write about in 1 Corinthians 13, where he said, love believes all things. And he believed it about Saul. And so he's with them in Jerusalem. He fellowshiped with them. They had a common ground, a community there, so much so that he spoke boldly. Verse 29, He spoke boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus, but they attempted to kill him. He's persecuted again. Now this time in Jerusalem. And so he has to leave Jerusalem first for Caesarea and then back to Tarsus, the place where he grew up. Isn't it interesting? The story of Saul's conversion begins with him leaving Jerusalem to go to Damascus to persecute. It ends with him leaving Jerusalem as the persecuted because now he's a follower of Jesus. And so they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him out to Tarsus. Do you know what he did in Tarsus? If you do, tell me because the text doesn't tell us. These are about 10 or so silent years, anywhere from 8 to 12, we'll just say 10. 10 silent years in Saul's life. Oh, I'm sure he served God, but it was in obscure ways. And God did a great work in his life, I'm sure, during that time. We'll speak more about it later. But here is Saul of Tarsus, the young, successful, energetic rabbi. Then he was Saul the persecutor. Then he was Saul the blind. And he became Saul the convert. And then he became Saul the preacher. And then he became Saul the persecuted, right? But before he ever became Paul the apostle, he spent about 10 years as Saul the unknown. And in those years, God did a very deep work in his life preparing him for that. All right, let, let me conclude with just a few thoughts here. Look, I, I got to be honest. I, in this whole message, I haven't spoken a whole lot about Jesus, right? Honestly. We've spoken a lot about Saul. We've spoken about Ananias. We've spoken about Barnabas. You go, well, where's Jesus in all this? Because I'm here to tell you, Saul or Ananias or Barnabas, those guys didn't die for our sins. Only Jesus did. Saul or Ananias or Barnabas, they can't save us. Only Jesus can. But his work is extended to us through people like Saul 
and Ananias and Barnabas, right? Saul who would preach the word. Ananias who would midwife people into the kingdom of God. Barnabas who would be like the, the living embodiment of Jesus on earth to love somebody and put their arm around them. Do you see? This is the point. Jesus is enthroned in heaven, but the Bible says he has what it calls a body here on earth. And you know who that body is? It's you, the followers of Jesus. So Jesus' voice on this earth to preach his message of how he died on the cross, to, to have forgiveness of sins and new life for people, that message is going to come through a Saul through you. That, that, that midwifing into the kingdom of God, that's going to come through Ananias, through someone like you. That, that life-saving, encouraging word and loving touch from another brother or sister, that's going to come through you. So think of it in two ways. Think of it that that's what God wants to do through you, but that's how God wants to give to you. I wish so much that Jesus was right behind this pulpit in his physical presence right here, right now. But I can be in whatever way I can, whatever weak way I can, I can be a mouthpiece to point you to him. We have a prayer team that's going to come up here after service. If you want to be midwifed into the kingdom of God, you come up and talk with them. And they'll, they'll be like Ananias to you. Some of you, you're deeply... You, you've hardly heard a word I've said because you are so troubled about something in your life. Really. And I don't, I'm glad you're here. Listen, you come up, they'll be like a Barnabas up here to pray with you and to bless you with the kingdom of God. Jesus' body is right here, right now. You're a part of it to both receive from it and to give from it. 